Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Good excuse to get to, to connect to two old friends. Uh, Fatima Sumar leads the Center for International Development at Harvard. And Jonathan is a writer and a researcher and a campaigner on all things sustainable development and recently co-founded a think tank called Global Nation. Maybe we can hear a little more about that later on in our conversation. Uh, I hope your summers are going well. I thought it was going to be a quiet week, a quiet summer week, but it has not been in terms of the news in our space. A lot going on. Um, and maybe we could just start with a couple of the, the stories that have kind of billion dollar handles attached to them. Uh, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, in the U.K., we had a really big story where the country has passed a new immigration law, a pretty tough draconian immigration law. And as DevEx reported, we figured out by talking to people at the OECD that the government there may have bitten off more than they realized with this new rule in that some of the money, a significant portion of their aid budget, maybe can't count as foreign aid anymore. And I wonder, uh, Jonathan, if you had a chance to see that story and if you had any reaction. Yeah, I did, Raj. I mean, I've spent a lot, a lot too much time in my career working on the, the precise definition of ODA, which, of course, is defined by the members of the OECD themselves, not by, not by countries around the world, but by a small group of donors. And it has this kind of weird provision that the first two years of of costs to support refugees can count as over, uh, as official development assistance, um, which, which has some kind of uh, merit, I guess, uh, although it's clearly spent in, in country rather than uh, overseas. Um, but, you know, what, what I learned over those many years of counting ODA and trying to work out the stats is that, you know, it's a bit of a fool's errand. Um, it, you know, the 0.7% target does matter in some contexts. And of course, the British government is really, really keen to, 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 to get as high as possible on that 0.7, given the huge cuts it's made. But the fundamental things that matter here are first, the law itself, which is abominable. And, you know, the most important thing is treating vulnerable people that arrive in other countries with dignity. And that's what this law uh, uh, fails to do. Yeah, just so people who are listening are aware that this bill, it's called the Illegal Migration Act. It passed earlier this month. And it basically says that if you arrive and you don't have permission, um, you are banned from applying for asylum. So you can be detained and deported. And what you know, our reporter figured out by talking to the OECD, which it seems like maybe embarrassingly for the, the Sunak government, they didn't realize is that this would change the definition according to those OECD rules that Jonathan just described. And so this significant portion, almost a third of the UK ODA budget, which currently goes to to putting up refugees in hotels, for example, uh, that may no longer be counted. And so the, the government is kind of scrambling to figure out, well, where would that money come from? And obviously, as you say, Jonathan, in, in a sense, it's all the same money sloshing around, being moved from one definition to another. 
But in another sense, it does cause, it seems like a little bit of a budget crisis in, inside the UK. And these are not small numbers. We're talking about over three billion pounds a year um, that were diverted to kind of these domestic hotel bills and other costs for dealing with refugees. Yeah, which itself is crazy. And in a sense, I mean, the way you put it, it makes me think that it's kind of almost forcing us to be a bit more honest. I mean, the, the, the very significant uh, rise in the amount of money being spent on refugee costs, I think it's 30% of British ODA or something, really high number. And it's not just the UK, it's France, it's the Scandinavian countries. There's a lot of countries are now reporting this in a bigger way. And it kind of skews the ODA numbers because people think this is money spent on international development and, you know, 20 or 30% of it is actually being spent on um, housing people, as you say, in not always the best kind of housing. So, Right, so the UK government kind of will have a choice here. It can it can just continue to spend what it's spending overseas and be willing to deal with maybe some more international condemnation about its reduction in total spending. It you know, went from the 0.7%, which was this big target, as I think our listeners probably know, and, and some, a source of pride for the country to say they achieved it. They, they got rid of that. and They're back down to about 0.5% of gross national income. And they could say, well, we're just going to go lower if the OECD won't won't classify this spending as overseas development assistance and just deal with whatever that means in terms of their reputation and perception around the world. Uh, Or they could find that money elsewhere in the budget. But it does create a bit of a crisis for them. And it makes me think, just Fatima, to bring you into the discussion, it makes me think about kind of the big political themes that, that are often driving aid, and in particular now. So you have one here, which is migration, particularly relevant in Europe and the UK. In the US, it's the kind of conflict with China, the growing competition with China. And we saw similar budget machinations this week where the Senate put forward their own uh, funding provision, and they essentially kept funding for US foreign assistance flat from last year. Um, around 52 billion U.S. dollars. And that's a big difference from what the House had called for, which was a a cut of around 10 billion U.S. dollars. Um, And I guess, sorry, the Senate version was around 62, not 52 uh, billion. The House called for about 10 billion less. And it seems like the the big kind of political motivation behind a lot of the of what we heard from U.S. senators was that we need to face China. There's some new provisions in there facing China. You spent a lot of time in the U.S. government at Millennium Challenge Corporation at the State Department. I'd love to get your take on, on that and kind of the broader picture uh, in terms of U.S. and, and even U.K. foreign assistance. You know, so what's really interesting this week is that the Senate Foreign Ops Committee, this is the Committee of Appropriations um, that passes the, secu- the, the bill that provides critical security assistance. This is really the, the funding for the State Department and USAID in particular. Um, these are programs that are critical for uh, domestic uh, U.S. security abroad, especially our embassies, um, how the U.S. shows up abroad, but also funding our development budget, our global health budget, support for key allies. It was interesting that the Senate budget, which, as you said, largely flatlined um, around the administration's request with a slight, a little bit of a slight dip from what the administration asked for, you know, it really focused on, of course, the traditional security assistance, support key allies, global health. But then you also see things in it like a countering Russian influence fund, you know, 300 million in it for that, a countering uh, PRC influence fund, which is 400 million dollars. 
um, which was an increase of the FY23 enacted level to combat malign Chinese influence, um, all the way down to the humanitarian assistance um, and, and so on. The, the House, you know, the House took a very different approach. The House really didn't think, um, didn't really focus as much on those global implications and really focused a lot around um, domestic considerations as well around uh, trimming the foreign aid budget by quite a significant amount with this $10 billion reduction from the administration's request, um, really kind of focusing, as the DevEx reported, on kind of very partisan, testy, and cultural war debates, as, as DevEx reported earlier this week. Um, and it's going to set up a clash, right, between the House and Senate of what those final numbers will be before it crosses the president's desk. And in many ways, in the U.S. context, it reveals this ongoing debate, political debate and discussion around our foreign affairs priorities. Um, this is a tiny part of the U.S. budget, right? So this is less than 1% of the entire U.S. budget is even focused in this area. But even as we debate on the margins of this 1%, um, you know, the prioritization of what does it take to keep the United States secure abroad and beyond a physical security sense of the type of development priorities that we know that keep people secure all around the world, where a little investment really does go a long way. So I think we're kind of back to some of the, the partisan bickering that we have been seeing consistently over the last decade, even during my time serving um, in the Senate on the foreign affairs side, um, where it's it's still very difficult to convince um, in a bipartisan way across the board the investment and why this is such a critical investment and why a little goes a long ways. Yeah, there was a kind of a golden era, uh, maybe when George W. Bush was president. Is, is the best example, and, and the agency you work for, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, was one of the results of that golden era where Republicans and Democrats agreed. Uh, there was a, a really strong bipartisan consensus, and PEPFAR came out of that, MCC, and U.S. foreign assistance dramatically grew during, during that period. And it feels like now that's perhaps over, or at least we're in a really different phase, and there's two different political threads pulling in opposite directions. The, the thing that holds it together is this focus on external enemies like China and Russia, and that maybe you get a bipartisan consensus around countering their influence. And the thing pulling it apart are the kind of culture wars that we see more broadly in U.S. domestic politics. And the idea that in the House side, as you talked about, Fatima, they, you know, there was a conversation about critical race theory and drag queen workshops and other sorts of culture war, hot button things that really animate, especially the right wing in, in the U.S., and that those have injected themselves into our debate around foreign aid, it suggests there's this push and pull. And I'm not clear on, on who's going to win in that. Like, will, in the end, the competition with China be more important and lead to state stability, at least in foreign assistance budgets? Or will you know we actually enter a more partisan and politicized view of foreign aid that ends in pretty deep cuts like we saw in the UK. Uh, I don't know, Jonathan, if you have a take on on these debates here in the United States, I'd love to hear it if so. Yeah, I do. It's not, it's not an expert one, but it's interesting to see those um, debates. And I'm reading that piece. What, what I thought was how interesting that there's an, actually a level of honesty in the US about the reasons why this money is being spent. I mean, you know, in the UK, you know, it's ODA is still very much considered charity. You know, it's us uh, offering gener generously money for others with really no thought for ourselves. Whereas in the US, it seems to be quite almost the opposite. It's like we're clear that this money is for US interests 
And, you know, there's a level of honesty there and there's also a level of kind of political reality. I mean, I think as we move further into the 21st century, you know, and, and, and China is not the only um, big power, it's the biggest, but there are many rising powers, you know, we're going to have to be realistic about, oh, I would love all this money to be given in terms of solidarity, global solidarity and common goods. And that's, as you know, it's something that we're campaigning for really hard. But nevertheless, the political reality is we have to also frame this in terms of um, national self-interest, long-term interests, and of course, you know, the global common goods that affect the developing world are also very much affecting the rich world. So, so I think, you know, it's not all bad news. There seem to be some kind of, um, some kind of togetherness by both parties in terms of, you know, this money needs to be spent. Obviously, the kind of demonization of China is kind of annoying. I was, I was in DC recently and, and someone I spoke to said they'd never seen such kind of almost bipartisanship around the issue of China the threat rather than China the potential ally. And I guess the question for development over the next five, 10 years is, can it be a guardrail that as these trade wars continue and as the kind of global geopolitical power competition continues, is climate and other uh, development issues and health, are they areas that actually even the US and China and others can come together around, even as they compete in other areas? Right. And of course, the Biden administration in some ways has tried to ratchet down what they saw as the growing tension and rhetoric. There was a conversation around decoupling with China. And they said, no, no, it's not decoupling, it's de-risking. And, you know, I think you're right. If there is going to be a prevention of a, a real hot war, uh, if this, you know, this competition to prevent this competition turning into a conflict, you would think the place where there can be real cooperation is around climate issues and global health issues and other development development issues and how that plays out in places like the World Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank will be a really interesting story to follow in the in the next couple of years. Um, Fatha, but just coming back to you, I'm curious, when you look at how this is playing out, this U.S. foreign assistance debate and what we just heard from Jonathan happening in the U.K., do you think this is sort of a new political moment and we should just be prepared to live with the china russia conversation the woke kind of culture war conversation uh for some years to come and this is just sort of the new reality or is this more of a blip in a longer trend toward you know a, a sober smart bipartisan agreement around foreign assistance well you know raj i don't know that i'm an expert to answer that question but let me just say what what we're what astonishes me, you know, having watched the space now for the last 15 years and been part of some of those conversations during my government career, is that in many ways we're just bickering on the margins, right? Like we're, we're watching. It's like it's like you're you're talking about the trees while while watching forests burn. Um, we're talking about less than one percent of the U.S. the U.S. budget um, for whatever those priorities, you know, are are agreed to by the administration or in, in Congress. And uh, meanwhile, you know, you have you have Russia, you have China, but you ha also have the rise of all of these movements taking place all around the world. I mean, the news this week that I was focused on, in addition to all of this, was the attempted coup in Niger, for instance, this week, which is, you know, the sixth, it would be the sixth coup in what, the last three years in, in the Sahel in West Africa, following Burkina, Mali, and, and so on. And if you look at what happened recently in Sudan as well, you have the rise of these, um, you have these rise of these militant movements that are taking place juxtaposed against drought, famine, um, climate migration, and, and a burning climate. I mean, so much of the world is changing so rapidly 
some of these are grassroots movements, political movements. They're not just at a state and national level anymore. And so in some ways, you know, it feels to me like we're, we're still playing in this kind of great power competition as if the only movements that we have to care about take place at a national level, right? Um, and that we're back in this kind of World War II era of if we can duke it out and just win against our other national competitor, we get supreme hege uh, hege uh, hegemony in the world. Um, there's so many other types of things and movements happening that have complex, interconnected effects that cross borders. I mean, we're burning this summer in so many parts of the world here in the United States, Europe and Asia um, with some temperatures that we've never seen before. We have 101 degrees is the ocean temperature off the coast of Florida right now. Um, so, you know, I, I hope while these conversations, political conversations in Washington and London and elsewhere that are taking place to figure out what is in core national interests, I hope they start coming to a realization sooner rather than later that if we don't start getting serious about the complex new world that we live in um, and start taking some of these challenges, whether that's global health, climate migration, um, population movements, and not just about charity, but about core investments and in infrastructure in people all around the world, uh, you know, the, 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 the political discourse is going to lag behind the actual uh, problems that we face. And you don't want to get to a tipping point where it's too late to actually uh, have the impact that you want to see. So it, it's, it's amazing to me that we're bickering on the margins while, while the world is burning. It's a fantastic point. And so well said, you know, it reminds me of the pandemic, you know, which you would think we had, we shouldn't have forgotten about, right? But with heroes, maybe we have, uh, where we had lots of people in global health and we, we reported on this at DevX before the pandemic, plenty of leaders in global health saying, look, the big threat is a respiratory borne virus that, that could easily become a pandemic and we need to be prepared for this and have strong health systems and all the rest. And then when it hit us, it was like a big shock. And I think reality has a way of, of biting you, right? And, and coming back and certainly climate, we can see it, you know, real time and it's it's going in one direction. So, you know, that may very well change what are these short-term political dynamics. Um, of course, it's going to affect those political dynamics in a couple of ways. You know, one is countries experiencing the, the effects of climate and saying maybe their populations waking up and saying, wait, what are we doing about this? But also it could make countries more inward looking, right? If you If you think about the, the refugee crisis and how that has affected Europe already politically and potentially we'll see many more people coming as climate refugees. So it is a complex dynamic that pulls maybe in both directions. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. But your point about you know, bickering on the margin reminds me of another story this week, which is around funding and attention for HIV. Um, I talked about that golden era in aid, and, and one of the big success stories really was the, the creation of PEPFAR and the Global Fund. And there's been enormous progress 
um, even some countries have achieved what UNAIDS calls the 95, 95, 95 targets. Uh, 95% of people living with HIV know their status, 95% of those are on treatment, and 95% of the ones being treated have virally suppressed uh, HIV. So there's been a lot of success, but you know, Devex spoke this week with Anjali Atrakar, who's the, the number two at UNAIDS and used to be the number two at PEPFAR. Um, and she's saying, you know, we've got to be careful that we're sort of losing focus and attention on this issue and funding as a result is dropping. And perhaps this problem that we thought we kind of had a handle on uh, and we're going, was going in the right direction, perhaps we're going to start losing in this battle. And it's your, to your point, Fatima, that we're bickering on the margins when we could be investing more and actually doubling down on areas where there's progress and success and addressing new areas of, of tremendous risk like climate. Jonathan, do you have a take on, on what uh, Anjali had to say about HIV and where it fits in the, in the conversation? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, the Global Fund for AIDS, Malaria and Tuberculosis has been one of the most successful uh, international cooperation projects probably in history. Uh, but it's but it suffers from the same kind of basically theoretical problem that almost all quote aid suffers from, which is the idea that it's a temporary problem that eventually will fix and then you know will will move out. Countries graduate from the global fund in the same ways that they quote graduate from aid. And I think you know I, I, I didn't see the comments you particularly mentioned, but I, I live here in Colombia and it's one of the countries, many middle income countries that are seeing basically very hard to get access to global uh, health fund money because of their financial status. But there are great needs in terms of, actually in terms of HIV AIDS, but also other infectious diseases, other health, global health security diseases. And well, actually our new report, which I'm gonna plug coming out this uh, September of the Global Solidarity Report, one of our calls to action is to ensure the world against infectious disease. And that requires continued spending on national health systems, of course, focusing on the poorest countries, but also the middle income countries, and of course, then building a global health infrastructure that's much stronger and moving away from the idea, the 20th century idea that aid will come to an end and we'll all be fine. That, that doesn't happen. OK, these challenges are not only continuous and permanent for humanity over the next centuries, but also are growing. If you look at the climate crisis and become a smaller world, the, the, the health um challenges as well so we need to be setting out a program of global public investment as you know this is our big campaign global public investment for the long term to ensure uh, ourselves against the crises and actually to take take you know from a positive side take opportunity of all the take 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 advantage of all the opportunities but the idea that the money kind of has to kind of gradually reduce is wrong it has to gradually increase and it has to be managed and governed differently yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating point. I tend to agree, you know, in the U.S. we had this this line during the Trump administration. Mark Green, who was USAID's administrator then, talked a lot about the journey to self-reliance. And I think it was a, a valuable political message to, to get support, especially from Republicans in Congress. Uh, but is it real? You know, are we really on a journey to self-reliance? Or when you look at the depth of the challenges, Fatima mentions Niger and and the coup that looks like it's very much underway and maybe succeeding, uh, along with many other countries in the Sahel who have experienced coups. Do we really think we're on a journey to self-reliance for many of these countries, and especially with the with the climate crisis where it is? So I agree with you. We have to really consider the framing of these issues, which which makes me think of another DevEx story from this week where we talked to Avinash Prasad, who, of course, is the, the architect of the Bridgetown Initiative. You know, he's the, the economic right-hand 
of Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, and and he says we have we've got to kind of get the framing right around climate funding that it's not about reparations that shouldn't be the language we're using we should be talking about global solidarity something you mentioned as well Jonathan I, I wonder how the two of you think about that Fatima when when you think about how we go into the COP negotiations this this winter and we discuss what the world ought to do what's the right way to to think about this and frame it. You know, at a certain point, and it's kind of coming back to what I said, if we continue to see the world in zero-sum state-to-state relations without really appreciating what all of us live as a daily reality, that our entire lives are influenced by cross-non-national movements, whether that's our supply chains, whether that's pandemics and public health, whether that's wildfires from Canada, Western Canada, or Quebec that... um, turn the air brown in New York City all the way down to Atlanta. Um, so much of our daily lives now are influenced by things outside of national control. And so if we continue to position negotiations, including at COP28, and as we think about loss and damage and beyond, as just um, you know a charitable movement of some high-income countries to think about charity towards those don't have as much or think about it in zero-sum games of just finance. I, I don't see how we get to a way that's a win-win for people, for people, right? And at the end of the day, nations should be representing their populations and their people and not just their political interest. Um, and so what what is continually frustrating me in reading about some of these um, movements about, in, I mean, it's the entire development conversation, why development is point you know, what is it, 0.7% ODA in the U.S., less than 1% of our budget, this idea that we're just doing things out of charity um, and or and or national strategic interests, but not because we're actually investing in ourselves. This money is a small return of investment of our own quality of lives here in the United States, in the U.K., and all around the world. I mean, um, can I can I just compare, you know, make some connections with your different stories of the week. Like just to go back to HIV AIDS, the difference of what we're talking about, Raj, right, of the budgets is something like $9 billion is the gap for HIV programming, um, which is what, you know, you need about $29 billion by 2025 and only $21 billion right now is available right right now. For an $8 billion gap, we're going to risk how many lives? because we can't find $8 billion to close this gap. It it seems these are rounding errors, the rounding errors. Um, And this inability to make politically smart choices that are beyond four-year election cycles or five-year election cycles, um, I think is becoming really frustrating to just real people on the ground everywhere who are not part of political systems and increasingly are getting turned off by what these systems actually do for them. So I'm curious what both of you would say to young people who are thinking about their career in this space. You know, we we had a story this week that kind of highlights some of that frustration about them talking to leaders of nonprofit organizations in the global south who kind of feel like, you know, we're getting even the language wrong. We should be focusing more on national NGOs. We talk a lot about international NGOs and local NGOs, but there's lots of fantastic, highly resourced, you know, ready to, to do the work, great capacity, national NGOs, and that kind of the landscape has really shifted even within the development sector. We haven't fully adopted it. We still tend to focus on the, the big aid agencies, as Jonathan was saying, you know, the international organizations that have big brand names. Do you think that that shift has really happened in our space 
that it's a much more diverse space with much more activity on the national level? And what does it mean for for young people and students? I know both of you have done done some teaching. Uh, Fatima, you know, students you talked to at Harvard and the graduate program there. What what do you think about where they should head given these dynamics? Well, first, the reporting you did at DevEx this week um, coming out of Kigali and the Women Deliver Conference, which brought together, um, you know, really thousands of people uh, in person and live to have really critical conversations. The report that was launched from the group of women leaders, Voices for Change and Inclusion report is kind of shocking in some ways of the statistics. I mean, not surprising, but when you when you add up the numbers, I mean, the fact that in at least the multilateral space for a moment, that since 1945, you've had these organizations that have had a total of 382 leaders and only 47 of them being women, um, and that women have been in charge for only 12% of the time in the these, the, these biggest groups that really run the international aid architecture since 1945, uh, with the 13 largest organizations, including all four of the world's largest development banks, have never elect, have never elected a woman leader ever in their entire history. Um, you know, as you think about where does money sit, where does power sit, where does influence sit, the partisan bickering that you're seeing in capitals all around the world. I mean, how do we get to better outcomes without women being part of the conversation? and being part of these leadership tables. Um, and, and how do we, unless we really start to think in revolutionary ways um, at scale and not just, you know, step pieces that we've been doing since 1945, how do you think about this space? You know, I talk to students all the time here that work uh, with Harvard Center for International Development. They're, they're so passionate about wanting to go and make change in the world. Men, women, uh, people from so many different countries. You're gonna need to really see different types of representation at every single level. And people are going to have to step aside for that to happen. Um, and I think for the students, for the next generation that are coming online, really demanding those spaces and not asking for them anymore, you're going to have to start seeing some pretty revolutionary shifts here. Because if we go at the current pace that we've been doing in the international aid architecture space for the last 60 years, frankly, we're never going to get there. So I'm placing a lot of hope in this next generation of students that we see in all of our universities, in our communities. Um, they are like the heart and soul of local organizing, local movements. Um, they have tremendous voice and power. Uh, it's time for them to have a seat at the table. Um, I, will, I will just do a plug for your audience to say that in 2024 here at the Center for International Development, as we plan for our academic year, our big focus this year is going to be on gender and development, um, culminating in our flagship conference, our global empowerment meeting in May. And so we would love to invite all of you to be part of this conversation with us to really think about how we get to this level of change at scale. Yeah, so well said. And I love how this group of women leaders seems to be very strategic in zeroing in on the secretary general's race at the UN, which we are years away from. It's 2026 is when we'll elect a new secretary general. But they're saying, look, there's never been a woman in that role. And let's start now and build some momentum. Last time around, there were many highly qualified candidates. We could probably think of some that might make sense for the, for the coming election in 2026. And obviously, the politics behind that is is really significant. There's a lot of geopolitics behind it. There's you know, regional representation questions. But there's no reason that the next secretary general should not be a woman. And I think they're really planting a flag here. And they, they did it at Women Deliver. Uh, they, they did it through some of the reporting we, we published this week. 
they're planting a flag and saying we're paying attention to this race in particular. I think it'll be a really interesting one to to focus on. Jonathan, I'd love your your take on any of these questions. Yeah, thanks, Raj. It's great to listen to you, Fatima, as well. Really interesting analysis. But as we much more broadly, we're all agreed that on our analysis, you know, we're we're in real trouble here as a world, uh, not just the global south, the global north as well. But the the policy and decisions and interventions that are required are, are miles more than is currently on offer. And that's the kind of frustration and that's the that's the huge gap. And it's quite clear to me and I think to many, many people that what's going to be required is uh, organized public pressure to, you know, the, the answers are there. We don't you know, we could discuss what policies are required for X, Y and Z. I mean, the policies have been on the table for like 10, 20 years. We kind of know what's needed. What we're not getting is the actual action. So how do we get there? Well, it's got to be it's got to be political pressure. And that's very, very hard, as we know. Um, but the, I think the two things that that make me. Um, confident that we'll get there eventually are firstly that I think, you know, for most of my life and for many decades, I think people kind of thought, especially in the global north, but but even more broadly, that, you know, the system's broadly okay. We just have to make it better and work for work a bit better. And I think that that attitude is now not shared by the new generation that Fatima was talking about. I think it's quite clear that the system is not working. Um, and therefore, the idea that we might change that system is, is much higher on the agenda. And you can see this um, through presidents talking and the foundations backing system change and all that kind of thing. So I think that's that's higher up the agenda. And, and secondly, I think the narratives are winning. Uh, actually, you know, you mentioned gender. Gen gen gender is one of the indicators we have in our in our global solidarity scorecard that we're launching. Uh, it's number of women in parliament around the world. And there is a good news story here. So just, just to give you the numbers, it was 14% of, of parliamentarians globally were women in 2000. 20%, this is World Bank numbers, 20% in 2010, currently 26%. So um, the anger that we see about, you know, the Secretary General is in a sense, it's, a, it's, it's kind of almost progress. And sometimes anger is progress because the narrative has shifted. It is simply unacceptable that that's, that's the case now. And also the decolonization argument, the shift of power argument. I feel like we're winning those narratives within our space at least. But real power, uh, we might not be winning so well. And so we need to organize um, and we're not going to win this. We're not going to win these big interventions by being right or having the most brilliant uh, policy proposal, we're gonna win them by persuading leaders that it's in their interest and their country's interest and it's the right thing to do. And that is a really hard, uh, that's the hard work of, of organizing and campaigning. So good luck everyone, <laughs> it's been good to you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good note to end on, Jonathan. I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion. We went a bit long because the two of you have so many interesting things to say and there was so much news on what we thought would be a quiet, summer week, but uh, a really busy week. And as you say, a lot of these are stories that are just, you know, the next iteration in a long term trend, both in terms of how our community frames the issues, the narratives around them, how we're structured internally, what we campaign for externally. Uh, lots here to chew on from from the two of you. Fascinating conversation, Fatima Sumar and Jonathan Glenny. Thank you so much for, for being with us this week. Thanks so much, Fatima. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.